You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today I have Chris with me, and I'm really excited because we're going to be talking to an incredible ocean defender. I'm talking about a whale of a conservation legend, if you will, a shepherd of the sea, and actually a modern-day heroic pirate in my eyes. My guest today is Captain Paul Watson, and he is the founder of Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. And Paul and his team have been fighting for years to protect the ocean and marine wildlife. And he has thousands of sea shepherds over 40 countries working on campaigns together to protect the world, the ocean, and the creatures that inhabit it, including anything from the vaquita porpoise to sea turtles. And some of our listeners are probably familiar with Paul and Sea Shepherd Conservation Society as they've been featured in the reality TV series, Whale Wars on Animal Planet. And Paul has recently wrote an amazing book called Orcopedia, which we'll also hear more about today. So please stick around and everyone give a big welcome to Paul Watson. Hello, Paul. Nice to see you. Oh, thank you. We're so excited to have you, Paul. Thank you so much. Oh, yes, you. this is, uh, I, I was a little nervous before the interview because it's like talking to like a rock legend of the ocean or something. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're rolling your eyes, but for, <laughs> for someone like myself that has seen you on TV and followed just your iconic journey, it, it's just you're a real conservation hero. And uh, I know we're going to get a lot of our listeners excited about your work and your organization. So just to get started, can you Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, I actually started as an activist when I was 11 years old, um, you know, freeing beavers from traps and destroying traps. So I pretty well have been doing this for 60 years. Uh, you know, I was the youngest co-founder uh, co of uh, Greenpeace, uh, and I left Greenpeace in 77 to establish Sea Shepherd. The reason being is that where Greenpeace is a protest organization, Sea Shepherd is an interventionist organization. We intervene against illegal activities primarily. And I also set up a, a strategy, which uh, I called uh, aggressive nonviolence. In other words, we are going to be very aggressive, but we're not going to hurt anybody. And after 42 years, we've never caused a single injury to a single person, nor have we sustained any injuries. But we have shut down literally hundreds of illegal activities in, on the world's uh, ocean. Well, and as an 11-year-old uh, freeing beavers, which I just love that, that yeah, visual, uh, and growing up loving wildlife, do you have... Um, a story with marine animals in general, which is like your aha moment when you're like, okay, I, I need to move from the land out in the oceans. Well, in 1974, uh, Robert Hunter, Dr. Paul Spong and I uh, steered Greenpeace in the direction of saving whales. That actually caused a schism within Greenpeace because, you know, Greenpeace was founded by Quakers and environmentalists. And the Quakers didn't want to get involved with whales and things like that. I mean, after all, when you consider that the Yankee whaling fleet was owned by the Quakers, I can understand that, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they all dropped out. So we were free to go ahead and pursue uh, protecting whales. Well, in 1975, we were finally out there. Our objective was to shut down the uh, Russian whaling fleet. We found them 60 miles off the coast of California. 
Uh, and we had been reading a lot of Gandhi at the time, and we felt all we had to do was put our bodies between the harpoons and the whales and, uh, and they stopped killing whales. And uh, so Robert Hunter and I found ourselves in a small little boat uh, between the harpoons and eight magnificent sperm whales that were fleeing for their life. Uh, so every time uh, he maneuvered the, uh, you know, to get a shot, I would block the harpoon. And uh, then the captain came down the catwalk and screamed into the ear of the harpooner and, uh, and uh, then looked down on us and smiled, brought his finger across his uh, neck. And that's when I realized Gandhi wasn't going to work for us that day. And a few moments later, there was this horrendous explosion. And this uh, large uh, explosive harpoon head went over our head and slammed into the backside of one of the whales in the pod. And they had struck a female and she screamed. And, you know, whales actually scream. And we didn't realize that until that moment. And uh, she rolled on her side, there was blood everywhere. And suddenly the largest whale in the pod rose up and slapped the water with his tail and dove. And he swam right underneath of us and threw himself out of the water straight at the bow of the Soviet harpoon vessel. But they were ready for him with an unattached harpoon and the harpooner pulled the trigger and hit the whale at, uh, in point blank right in the head. And the whale screamed, fell back in the water and rolling about in agony. And as he rolled about on the surface, I caught his eye. And uh, he dove again. And this time I saw a trail of bloody bubbles coming straight at us real fast. And he came up and out of the water at an angle so that the next move would be to fall down on top of our little boat and crush us. And as his head came up out of the water and I looked into the eye of that whale, I was so close I could see my own reflection in the eye. I suddenly felt something. I felt that the whale understood what we were trying to do because I could see the effort he made to pull himself back. And his head began to fall back into the sea as I disappeared beneath the surface and he died. He could have killed the two of us, but uh, he didn't. So I was personally indebted to that whale for the fact that I'm still alive today. But I also saw something else in that eye and it was pity, not for himself, but for us, that we could kill so indiscriminately. And why were the Russians killing these whales? They weren't eating them, they were killing them for oil, high heat resistant spermaceti oil. And the uh, primary demand by the Soviets was for lubricating intercontinental ballistic missiles. So I said, here we are destroying this incredibly uh, intelligent, socially complex, self-aware sentient being for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it struck me, we're insane. <laughs> Ecologically, we're certainly insane. And from that moment on, I said, look, I'm not doing this for, for people. I'm doing this for them and for the creatures of the sea. And that's who we represent. They're our clients. Uh, now, just, in 1986, when we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet, I had a former colleague from Greenpeace. He said, I just want to let you know that what you did in Iceland was despicable, reprehensible, and an embarrassment to the entire movement. And I said, John, we didn't sink those ships for you. We didn't sink them for Greenpeace or for any other human being. We sank them for the whales. John, you find me one whale on this planet that disagreed with what we did, and I promise you we won't do it again. Yeah. Angie, oh, go I just, ahead, Chris. I got to say, after all the people we've interviewed, and we've interviewed, <clears throat> I don't know, I go back to Greg Rasmussen, Painted Dogs. That story, like, uh, literally, I'm like almost in tears listening to the, that whaling story. Like, I just, wow, wow. I, I could just, I, I know our listeners appreciate it, but, you know, thanks for sharing that, Paul. That's it's incredibly touching. And I could see where you would turn around and dedicate your life to, to the movement that you have. So thank you for sharing with that. Well, my objective back then was the 100% eradication of whaling. And I think we've achieved that 95%. When we began, whaling was taking place by Spain and Chile and South Africa, even Australia. And today, as of last year, actually, all whaling has been confined to the territorial waters of uh, Norway, 
uh, Denmark and Japan. Uh, no whales were killed in international waters last year for the first time ever. And so now it's a really a mop-up situation. Uh, Iceland, we've uh, managed to stop Iceland. They're officially, they're still whaling, but they haven't killed any whales for the last three years. And I think that they will stop. Uh, and so fighting the pilot whale kill in the Danish Faroe Islands and whaling in Norway and Japan. Japan, we're leaving alone right now because whaling is dying in Japan. It's a, it's a dead industry. And the worst thing we can do is to get involved because it stirs up all the nationalism and everything else like that. So we're going to just let that die a natural death and focus on Norway and Japan now. Yeah, it's so incredible. I mean, you started with this mission about ending whaling, which congratulations, as you mentioned, you are 99% of the way there, which is just incredible over your 30 to 40 year journey. But since the inception of Sea Shepherd, your organization has grown a lot from just protecting whales and the oceans. And so can you touch on a little bit of how your mission has evolved in the past years? Well, Sea Shepherd is no longer an organization. It's actually a global movement. We're in about 42 different countries, and they're all separate entities working together under the auspices of Sea Shepherd Global, which actually runs the ships. So we have 12 ships, and right now at any given time, there's about 200 crew members from about uh, 25 different nations on those vessels. We have two vessels right now, the Sam Simon and the Bob Barker, that are patrolling the, the west coast of Africa to stop poachers. Uh, we've arrested 52 poaching vessels uh, in the waters of Liberia, Gabon, Benin, Namibia and Tanzania uh, over the last uh, year. And uh, we're also patrolling the Mediterranean against poachers and uh, the Caribbean. We're also working off of uh, Latin America. We're now in partnerships with Peru and Mexico with their partnerships with the governments to go after poachers. And in Africa, we're in partnerships with uh, Liberia, Benin, Gabon, uh, uh, Tanzania, uh, Namibia, Santome, and Cape Verde. And uh, that's a we're being invited by more and more countries to get involved. What that means is that we can provide the resources and the volunteers, and they give us something that we don't have, which is the authority to intervene. Uh, so inside the territorial waters of countries around the world, we act in partnership with those governments that invite us in. Outside of the 200 mile limit are the territorial waters. We operate under the uh, guidance of the United Nations World Charter for Nature, which allows for non-government organizations and individuals to uphold international conservation law, especially in areas beyond national jurisdiction. And that's one of the reasons that after 42 years, we've never been convicted of a felony crime. And uh, we've, we've, anytime we've gone to court, and we've been taken courts to court numerous times, we've won the cases. So we operate within the boundaries of both practicality and the law. Uh, of course, what we're up against a lot of prejudice because the, our opposition has a lot of money. You know, these uh, literally hundreds of millions of dollars in these industries that we're opposing. And so that can buy a lot of influence, which is one of the reasons I'm on the Interpol Red list right now. Now, the Interpol Red notice list was uh, put together to stop serial killers, war criminals, and major drug traffickers. I'm the only person in history to be put on that list for the charge of conspiracy to trespass. Didn't even do it, just conspiracy to trespass. But that shows you how much power Japan has. They also got Costa Rica to put me on that list uh, for the charge of interfering with a, an illegal shark finning operation in Guatemalan waters that requested the Guatemalan government, but Costa Rica charged me. But that was dismissed last year. And it was interesting, it was dismissed after a change of government. And I actually got a call from the environment, new environment minister uh, saying that uh, they looked at this. And so that shows you how political it was. You can't just dismiss a charge if it was judicial, but you can if it's political. 
So I still have the Interpol red list from Japan. Now, Japan doesn't really want me in Japan. They don't want to really extradite me. They just want to keep me from traveling because I'm here in the US, but they've not applied for extradition in the United States. And when I was in France, they didn't apply for extradition there. But it is convenient for countries like Canada, even though I'm a Canadian citizen, I can't go to Canada because Canada will jump at the chance to extradite me to Japan because of our opposition to domestic salmon farms and to the Canadian seal hunt and to the wolf hunt and all these other things that are happening in Canada. So it has restricted us, but the Japanese did us a real favor in 2012 when they came after me personally because uh, that forced us to evolve. And Sea Shepherd is no longer me. It's no longer an organization that's now a global movement. Because uh, you can stop an individual and you can shut down an organization, but you can't stop a movement. And so it's made us a lot stronger. I, I just want to jump in there, Angie. Like I, we, we have a, a, a really young audience too. We, we hear from them all the time. And they're always asking, how do, can I get involved? How can I get involved? We always, you know, we always promote education. But just to jump in there, while you're, while you're talking about that global movement, um, are you recruiting help, you know, young folks to come in? And, and I know back in, the, in the, the whale wars days, you always had volunteers on the ship. And, you know, that's what made it fun to, to see how they all handled going down there to, those, to the Antarctic. But, you know, what could a young person do today to help your movement? Well, we're always looking for volunteer crew. We have people right now in Mexico pulling nets. We have people on the boats off of Africa. We have people in the, in the Mediterranean, in the Caribbean. So we're always looking for volunteer crew. So people can do that, but they can also support us as shore supporters, uh, you know, uh, helping uh, to raise funds and to support the operations of the vessel from shore. They can also support us as uh, contributing members uh, and supporters. But the real message I want to get across to what young people can do is to really look at what you're passionate about and get involved. Uh, the strength of an ecosystem is in diversity. Therefore, the strength of any movement is in diversity. So it doesn't matter whether your approach is litigation, legislation, education, direct action, doesn't matter as long as you do that, what you do best using your skills and ability to make this a better world. And uh, all of us working to go together towards the same goals uh, is what makes a, a movement strong. And uh, people should really get involved in the issues that are in their own uh, neighborhood, their own ecosystem, and try and see what they can do. Because each and every one of us can make a difference. Uh, because of Diane Fossey, we still have mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Because of David Wingate, the Bermuda storm petrel did not go extinct. Uh, you know, all you have to do is harness your passion to two virtues, courage and imagination, and you can change the world. I love that. And that kind of leads right into my next topic with conservation in general. You've been on the ocean for many years and you've been looking at ocean wildlife for many years. How has the ocean, ocean changed? Is it as unhealthy as we think it is? Are the animals dying? What's going on there? Well, I was raised in a Eastern Canadian fishing village. So I have seen the steady diminishment of, uh, of, uh, the so-called fisheries, but also the number of species and the destruction of habitats there, and it has been considerable. Our oceans are dying. It's as simple as that. Uh, since 1950, 40% of the phytoplankton population has been re removed from the sea. Phytoplankton provides 70% of the oxygen that we breathe. An ocean without phytoplankton is a creates a planet we can't live on. Uh, phytoplankton goes extinct, we all go extinct. If the ocean dies, we all die. It's a, as simple as that. But I'm also trying to get across people to people a better understanding of what the ocean is. The ocean is not the sea. 
The sea is one part of it. This is the planet ocean. And what that means is water in continuous circulation constantly. And that water can be in the sea, in the air, in the clouds, uh, underground, in the ice, and in the living cells of every plant and animal on the, on the planet. So the water in your body right now is once in the sea, once recently in ice, once underground, once in the sky. Uh, it's that continuous flow through everything that makes this a living planet. So, and every part is connected to every other part. So really, it's not just the sea that we're protecting, although that's what Sea Shepherd is focusing on, but it's every aspect of the planet ocean. And also, if you compare the planet to a spaceship, which is what it is, we're on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way galaxy, and every spaceship has a life support system. And that life support system provides us with everything we need, the food we eat, the air we breathe, and regulates climate and temperature. And that life support system on Spaceship Earth is run by a crew, a crew that keeps everything running. We're not crew members. We humans, we're passengers. We're having a wonderful time entertaining ourselves, but we're not crew members. But what we are doing is we're killing crew members. And there's only so many crew members you can kill before the machinery begins to break down and it all falls apart. And uh, with the loss of every species, it's like knocking a bolt out of the hull of the ship. You know, it's, uh, it's gonna, the ship is gonna eventually sink unless we do that. We don't live on this planet without trees, without worms, without bees, without bacteria, without viruses. We don't live without those. They're essential to us. But we live in an anthropocentric uh, reality that, is, uh, we, that we've created. It's all about us. We're dominant over everything. We're superior over everything. A few years ago, I was called up by Brett Hume of uh, Fox News, and he said, did you actually say that bees and trees and worms are more important than people? I said, yeah, I did say that. He said, well, that's outrageous. How could you say something so despicable as to say that birds and trees and worms are more important than people? I said, well, I said it because they're more important than people, because they can live here without us, but we can't live here without them. We need them, they don't need us. That makes them ecologically far more valuable than we are. So we just have to learn to live in harmony and, not, and, and, and to show a little humility and to understand that uh, this world is all of us, all these species together. We have to adapt a biocentric reality. Our anthropocentric delusions have created this collective mass psychosis, which uh, takes many forms in uh, this thing called religion, which almost every single religion on this planet puts human beings at the center and dominant and superior to everything else. The only uh, spiritual understandings that do not are those of indigenous cultures, which uh, share the same thing values that we once all shared 10, 12,000 years ago. And so that's one of the reasons Sea Shepherd uh, is supported by so many Aboriginal communities. We've been given the Aboriginal flag from Australia, the Maori flag from New Zealand, and we fly, we're the only vessels that fly the flag of the five nations to the Iroquois Confederacy that was presented to us by the the Mohawks, because the Mohawks say that make no decision in your life until you take into account the consequences of that decision on all future generations. And that's the kind of idea that we're trying to get across. The problem that in the world that we live in today, the geopolitical world we live in today is people have adapted to diminishment and they have no vision into the future. They adapt to things as they diminish. For instance, if this is 1965 and I were to say to you, you know, in 40 years, you're going to be buying water in bottles, plastic bottles, and paying more for that water than the equivalent value of gasoline. You look at me like, no, nobody's going to pay more for water than gasoline. And yet we're all doing that now. We've adapted to it unquestionably. We, If one species of fish goes uh, commercially extinct, we just move on to another species of fish. 
back in the 90s, uh, orange ruppie as a fish was everywhere in Trader Joe's. You don't hear about it anymore because this is a fish that takes 45 years to become sexually mature, lives to be 200 years old, and we simply couldn't keep up with our demand, our demand of it. And so this constant adaptation diminishment is, is going to be our undoing. And also the lack of vision. We look ahead to the next election or the next economic cycle or whatever. But to be a conservationist, you have to look ahead 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, a million years into the future, because what we do will define what that future will be. Yeah. Well, yes. And I just think that that is hard for a lot of people to do, to live beyond the day or the month. And there has been hope though. There is definitely stories for every story that is sad and has an unfortunate ending. There's also several stories where people are fighting for these animals and sometimes they win and the animals saved and sometimes they don't. But I think the goal is to share these positive stories. And I know at Sea Shepherd, you guys have been working to conserve ocean health big time. As you mentioned, our oceans are in crisis. And of course, working on several species besides just protecting whales from being poached. So would you mind touching on some of your current campaigns, such as saving the vaquita porpoise, some of your ocean cleanup projects to give our listeners a little more idea of how, um, how you're integrating your mission out there? Well, the advantages of having a movement is that uh, there's so many things happening all at once, I can't even keep track of the number of projects that are taking place. We're uh, focusing a lot on illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing operations. And uh, because, you know, we take more fish out of uh, the sea than we kill animals on land, and we kill 65 billion animals in the factory farms and all the that, that thing. The, the destruction of the fishes is probably one of the worst massacres of wildlife anywhere on the planet. And we don't think very much, uh, much of it at all. It's just uh, if it's a land animal, we tend to be more concerned. I mean, there's no difference between a bluefin tuna and a cheetah, but you don't go across the Serengeti Desert mowing down everything that lives in order to capture a few uh, cheetah, uh, cheetahs. And so that's what we're doing with when we go after uh, bluefin tuna. The, uh, we're, we're trying to protect the endangered vaquita porpoise. We're now in our seventh year. I'm quite confident that if it wasn't for our interventions over the last seven years that the vaquita would now be extinct. We've confiscated 120,000 meters of, uh, of illegal nets and uh, we've kept the poachers out of the vaquita refuge and we continue to do that. And we're working in partnership with the Mexican Navy to do that. Um, we're also, uh, we do beach cleanups around the world. We do coral propagation projects around the world. Uh, we're working to stop turtle poaching. Just last night, we actually saved 15 tortoises on the island of Mayotte off the coast of Madagascar uh, and chased away these um, machete-wielding poachers who were, uh, who were trying to kill them. And uh, so there's so many, uh, so many different campaigns and they're all being led by very wonderful people all over the world uh, and people in their own countries. You know, uh, our leadership are the peoples who live in those countries. You know, Lamy Assam Lamy, she founded Sea Shepherd France, uh, Jeff Hansen in Australia, uh, you know, so many, Michael Lowry in New Zealand, so many. Uh, we're all, also now in Chile and Brazil and on and on. And uh, so this is a way you grow really as a movement is to let people come up with their own ideas and uh, don't centralize everything and try to control it. And so that's pretty, that's what we're doing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you, you talked earlier about, you know, I guess coming back to whale wars, Japan, I, I think a lot of people don't understand because we, we've covered multiple, you know, whale species. We talked about blue whales and, you know, how, the demand for whale meat in Japan is just, it, it's not there. There just isn't a market for it really. 
So right now, you know, you said the focus is Denmark with the Faroe Islands and Norway. What are some of the campaigns that are going on there? And, and why are they, I, I guess, the, the small population on the Faroe Islands, I think it's like 50,000, right? Why are they killing so many thousands of pilot whales and, and some of these other animals when there's other sources of animal protein for them? Well, the Faroe Islands actually enjoy one of the highest per capita incomes of any place on the planet. Uh, the supermarkets in the Faroe Islands have everything you can find. I mean, this is the island of sheep. There are more sheep on this island than there are people. And yet you go into the supermarket and they're selling New Zealand lamb. It doesn't make any sense to me, but um, they kill whales there, pilot whales and dolphins because, well, they've been doing it for hundreds of years. That's their only excuse. It's, uh, it's a, you know, they drop everything and go out and participate in the slaughter. It's like the the only thing they really have to do for fun, I guess. Uh, but they can't eat all the whale meat because it's so heavily contaminated with, contaminated with methyl mercury. And we have so much documentation of them dumping entire carcasses. They, they weigh them down, sink them at the ocean. They just want the killing. And uh, they try to say it's humane. It isn't. We filmed it and filmed it and filmed it over and over again. It's incredibly cruel. And, uh, but this is, well, this is their attitude. We're in the Faroe Islands, we'll do whatever the damn well we want, and nobody's going to come in here and tell us what to do. It's like the bullfight in Spain, although we're winning there, it's been banned in Barcelona, and it's going to be banned in southern France. And um, so you just have to keep going at it. No tradition should be allowed to exist that depends upon cruelty and death. And uh, I don't care how long that tradition has been going on, it should not exist. This is, you know, we, we, we've got to be more civilized uh, than that. You know, we have to understand that we have to respect all of these other species and we can't use them for that kind of thing. And that includes everything like fox hunting and also hunting itself is, is very, uh, there's no reason for this stuff to be taking place in a world which is rapidly diminishing the numbers of animals. One of the problems that we have today is that in any natural ecosystem, prey-predator relationships, one of the rules of prey-predator relationships is predators can never outnumber the prey. Eight billion human beings eating meat and fish is a world out of balance. And that, yeah, it's fine if you want to be a, a hunter-gatherer uh, 20,000 years ago. Uh, and, and it was fine to be able to adapt to diminishment back then. It was for survival. But we don't need to do that today. It's just not possible, uh, you know, to continue to do that and hope to survive. Well, and most of our listeners are, you know, I mean, I'm saying, you know, the vast majority want to take action. So what are some things, I mean, the Faroe Islands, you're, you know, you're talking the North Atlantic, how do we influence them and, or Norway to stop this whaling? It's just, it, it's horrific. We send people to the Faroe Islands every year. Uh, this year, we actually sent people from Denmark uh, to the Faroe Islands, and uh, we have supporters in the Faroe Islands now. So it's just constantly keeping that pressure on. The other thing is, in fact, I just got a, uh, a call from somebody yesterday who just got their local restaurant to stop selling Faroese salmon, you know, to, so, you know, as a, to boycott Faroese salmon. So people in their own community, in, in their communities can go and get the restaurants and the stores to stop selling uh, farm-raised salmon should stop it anyway, but you know that's another reason for doing it because of the because of the killing of the um, because the waters that they kill these whales in is the same waters they're raising the fish in, and the blood that comes out of those hunts ends up going into the same ecosystem. So there is it's very much connected in, in that respect. Uh, Norway, we just have to keep the pressure on there too. Iceland has been a success story for the last three years. I think it's going to be uh, it's going to take. 
Um, so again, here, here, the other thing too is people shouldn't be deterred by feelings of hopelessness that they can't do anything. The most valuable lesson I learned was back in 1973 when I volunteered for the American Indian Movement. I was a medic at the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. We were surrounded by 3,000 federal officers who were shooting 20,000 rounds a night into the village. They killed two and wounded 46. And I went to Russell Means, who was a leader of the American Indian Movement. I said, we don't have any hope of winning here. The odds are against us. What are we doing? And he told me something that stayed with me for the rest of my life. He said, we're not here because we're concerned about the odds against us. And we're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because this is the right place to be, the right time to do it, and the right thing to do. Concentrate on the present, and that will define the future. Don't worry about the future. Just concentrate on the present, and that will create the future. And so that's what we do. I don't get depressed about the future because I'm too busy trying to shape the present. And like I said, from 77 now to now, it's 95% of all whaling has been eradicated. And we'll just keep that pressure on and keep pushing. Just never give up. Just keep going and keep doing it. And that. And uh, there's so many people around the world who are making a difference uh, by applying themselves in this way or that. And how do people get involved? You know, back in 1983, I get a call from a man in Scotland. He says, they're killing gray seals up here in the gray, up in the Orkney Islands. What are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. I'm on the other side of the planet. You're in Scotland. What, what are you going to do about it? He said, well, what can I do about it? He said, well, so we helped them set up Sea Shepherd Group, and they were an enthusiastic bunch. They went up to the Orkneys, walked up to the sealers, literally ripped the rifles out of their hands and threw them into the ocean. And they all got arrested. But and we won the case, but we also got so much publicity that we raised the money to buy that island, which is now a seal sanctuary. It's how you get involved. Uh, one of my uh, crew members in 1979, when we chased down and ended the career of the pirate whaler Sierra, uh, he came to me after that and he, said, he says, I'm really concerned about the way they treat animals in laboratories and uh, we, got, we got to do something about it. I said, well, Alex, you know, we're, this is Sea Shepherd. We're not, not going to go into any laboratories, but why don't you do something about it? And he said, well, what can I do about it? I said, well, I'll just use your imagination and come up with something. And he went back to Maryland, got a job in one of the labs, documented everything there for a year, took it to the media, shut it down, got a lot of publicity. And then he established an organization, which today is the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. That's awesome. That's awesome. Captain Paul, it's just so inspirational. I love your stories. I could listen to them all day. <laughs> I know, I'm on my edge of my seat. You need to write. Uh, yes, I want, an, I want another book coming soon. Yes. Uh, definitely a, uh, an autobiography, that's for sure. And, yeah. and I know that several of our listeners are familiar, of course, with uh, the TV series Whale Wars. But if you can maybe touch on a little bit about that and some of some of the tactics, the nonviolent tactics that, you, that you've been known to use, whether it's either on the boat or like you mentioned recently, protecting nesting sea turtles or things like that. Um, is there a lot of door-to-door -door knocking? Is it a lot of education? Um, what are some of these ways that you help defend uh, animals and the environments they live in? Well, we do have, we do have an educational program, but more importantly, it's, it's an understanding of the, the media culture that we live in. And uh, the understanding that the most powerful weapon that's ever been invented is the camera. So that's why we go to sea with cameras. Uh, back in 2006, I went to all the networks. I said, look, the biggest show on Discovery right now is a bunch of guys who are going into a very cold, remote area to catch crabs every week. And I said, I can give you men and women going to a far more 
remote, far more hostile, far colder region to save whales. It has to be more compelling than catching crabs every week. Mm -hmm. And so they went for it and it became the number one show on, on, on Animal Planet, although it came under a lot of pressure from Japan and the United States government to shut it down. But um, the, so that's why we, we developed that. We realized a long time ago that in the, the media culture is easily understood. It's in fact, there's only four elements of media. And if you understand those four elements and know how to use them, you can get a story. And those four elements are sex, scandal, violence, and celebrity. Every story has one or more of those elements. And if you have all four, you got yourself a super story. Uh, and so that's what you have to do. You have to, you have to dramatize everything. When we did Whale Wars, there was only one tactic that worked and it worked every time, block the slipway and keep them from loading dead whales. If they can't load dead whales, they can't catch new ones. Uh, so that's what, that was our main, main thing. But you know, that's gonna be boring TV. So we did all things like water fights and, wa and, and, and stink bomb attacks. And that stuff was all done for show. But the real tactic was blocking the slipway. And uh, that was what was effective. We saved 6,500 whales and we shut them down. Japan is no longer in the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. And as of last year, whales have been killed in international waters. And uh, so we won that one and we cost them over $200 million in losses. So that's one of the reasons I'm on the Interpol Red List. Yeah. <laughs> I would hang, hang my hat on that. I would put that on my gravestone, please. That is amazing. That is awesome. That is awesome. But also, you know, there is this perception that what Sea Shepherd does is illegal, but it, we, what we don't do anything illegal. Uh, in the 2010, I was invited to give a talk to the FBI in Quantico, and they paid me to come give a talk. And uh, I took it as an opportunity to, to, to explain what we do. One of the agents at the question period said, well, you know, Sea Shepherd's walking a pretty fine line when it comes to the law. And I said, yeah, well, does it really matter how fine the line is as long as you don't actually cross the line? And, he couldn't disagree with me. So. <laughs> but also, you know, in the 90s, they called us, you know, our opposition called us pirates. I said, okay, well, if you want us to be pirates, we'll be pirates. It's a good Aikido form. Make make the accusation work for you. And we designed our own Jolly Roger and kids love it. And uh, it's yeah. a great marketing thing for our stuff to raise money for the ships and everything. But, you know, pirates are always really misunderstood. They're romantic figures. And also, uh, <laughs> Some of the great heroes of the, of the oceans were pirates. John Paul Jones, the founder of the United States Navy, uh, Roger Sacouf of France, uh, Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh, you know, all these people were, were heroes, but they were all pirates. And the, the only bad thing you could say about that, for instance, Blackbeard used to attack ships that were carrying slaves and would free the slaves and give them a choice, go ashore, or join my crew. And if you join my crew, you can rise to the level of your ability. Pirate ships in the 17th century, men, women, and people of color were equal on those ships and they elected their own uh, captains and officers. That was unheard of in the 17th century, way ahead of their time. And all they can come out with and say, well, they were thieves. Yes, they were thieves. They stole gold from the Spaniards. Yeah. And where did the Spaniards get the gold? They stole it from the Incas and the Aztecs. So, you know, and you steal gold from thieves. Are you really a thief? I don't know. But also you gotta, you gotta remember that in the 17th century in England, for example, a 10 year old boy could be hung for stealing a loaf of bread. With that kind of an environment, is it much of a far uh, stretch to say, okay, well, let's go plunder for gold. If we're going to get hung for stealing a loaf of bread, let's go for the whole banana. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's why so many people were attracted to, uh, to piracy.
Yeah. And also piracy was able to exist in the Caribbean because of corruption. Uh, uh, Lord Nelson was uh, sent off to the Caribbean to control the pirates and couldn't get a ship out of, port, out of Caribbean ports because of lawsuits brought against him by merchants, British merchants, who were worried that they were going to interfere with the profits of piracy. <laughs> and the pirates, because there was so much corruption, so much bribes going into the pockets of uh, government and, and corporations at the time, not much different than the way things are today. Just going to say that. Just going to say that. <laughs> not much has changed in a few centuries, right? Yeah, depending on how the election goes, I might need to go be on my own ship and start my <laughs> own uh, pirate community. <laughs> I, hear, I hear a lot of people say they're going to leave the country if uh, Trump wins. He's not going to win, but... It, that they're going to leave the country if he wins. But the fact is, is we've got to keep one thing in account. Nobody wants us. Right, right. <laughs> that is true. To another country. <laughs> yes. And so, Captain Paul, you obviously live a very full, amazing and interesting life. Can you tell me a little bit more of how and why you decide to sit down and pen this new book, Orcopedia, and give our listeners a little bit of a cliff notes and background on what it's about? Well, I've been writing books, uh, everything from poetry to books, and I was once a journalist, and so I've been doing that all my life. But uh, I, I got together with uh, Tiff Tiffany Humphrey, who used to be my assistant. She now is living in Hawaii, and uh, came out, we came up with this idea to, uh, to do this book because there's really no catalog or documentation of all of the orcas that have been captured, you know, the hundreds of orcas that have been captured and how they've been treated and how many of them have died. Uh, and so we wanted to put, get a record of that so people can see just how big this industry, this slave industry has been. And that's what it is. It's a, it's a slave industry. And it all started back in 19, uh, early 1960 with the, uh, with the capture of Moby Doll in the waters of Vancouver Island for the Vancouver Aquarium. And it's now emerged as a billion dollar industry and uh, not just orcas, of course, but also dolphins and others. And uh, so that's one of our objectives is to try and shut that, those in, that industry down. We're, we're suing the, uh, uh, the aquarium in France uh, to try and shut it down. Uh, we've addressed the, uh, we were very successful in addressing the Russian government to release uh, the dolphins and orcas that they had captured and were trying, and they were trying to sell to uh, China. And the tactic I used for that was, uh, you know, I, I wrote a speech to deliver to Putin and the government, but they're not going to listen to me. So I just simply sent Pamela Anderson over there to deliver the speech and they listened to her. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so this is what this book is, is really to, uh, uh, the documentation of all the orcas that have been captured, all the orcas that have died, the ones, each and every one of them individually that is now uh, are in very, all these different captive facilities around the world. You know, the interesting thing about, uh, you know, orcas, no, there's not one single case of an orca killing a human being in the wild. Mm -hmm. It's never happened. But Tilikum killed three people. Mm -hmm. Why? And people say, well, why is that? I said, well, imagine walking through the exercise yard of a maximum security prison in this country and see if you get to the other side. Tilikum was psychotic and for good reason, pulled from her, her mother, at a, his mother at a very early age and, and you know, mistreated and abused and everything. I, I'm surprised that he, he didn't kill more. I'm surprised the other orcas are so restrained. You know, this is the most formidable predator on the planet and it doesn't attack us. You know, back in two, 1975, two, three of us jumped into the water, into the path of a oncoming pod of orcas in the Straits of Bella Bella in British Columbia. 
And we, you know, because we were saying, oh, whales are really nice and cuddly creatures and everything. Let's go jump and swim with them. And back then, a lot of people believed that they actually ate people. I, uh, when I was in the Coast Guard, I had a captain says, you know, those things are they'll eat people all the time. And I said, well, I haven't seen a case, but you know. So anyway, we jumped into the water with them. Now I'll tell you, when you see an orca from the deck of a boat and you see an orca while your head's just above the water, it's a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. Suddenly what I saw coming towards me were these large creatures that ate sea lions for breakfast and sea lions were bigger than us. And uh, we watched them and uh, suddenly they disappeared. Now the only thing more intimidating than an oncoming pot of orcas at the time is an oncoming pot of orcas that suddenly disappears. <laughs> now you don't <laughs> And suddenly, a few minutes later, they just emerged right beside us. And for some ungodly reason, I just reached out and grabbed the dorsal of one of them and took off. Oh, I rode that whale for 200 meters. And, and then I just got flicked off with, with his tail. And I'm going, you don't walk up to a lion in the Serengeti. And no, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. allowed me to hold on to its fin and go along for the ride. You know, there is an intelligence there that we don't understand. You know, we tend to think that we're the most intelligent species on the planet or the only intelligent species sometimes, but we're not. What is intelligence? Intelligence is the ability to live in harmony with your natural environment. And by that criteria, we're not very intelligent. In fact, I was arguing with a whaler one time from Norway. He says, well, Watson, you say that intelligence is the ability to live in harmony with nature. But, you know, by that criteria, cockroaches are more intelligent than we are. I said, George, you're beginning to understand what I'm trying to <laughs> Yes. <laughs> All animals are intelligent relative to their ecosystem. But when you look at cetaceans, now you're looking at something completely different. The human, the, the average human brain is 1700 cubic centimeters. And the average orca brain is 6,000 cubic centimeters. And the average sperm whale brain is 9,000 cubic centimeters. These are big brain creatures. And big brains mean something. But more importantly, all cetacean brains are four parts to that with a very large neo, um, uh, area for, uh, for, um, for thinking and, and communication and everything. And the, the other thing is that the convolutions on the neocortex of orcas and sperm whales are so much more pronounced than on human beings. There's more brain matter on that. This is an intelligent creature, but we measure our intelligence by hand-to-eye coordination, the ability to make tools. If, it, if you don't drive a car, you don't talk on the telephone or wear, wear a dress, then you're not intelligent. That is the, that's our way of looking at it. But whales don't need telephones. They can communicate over long distance with each other. They don't need cars. They don't need boats. Uh, they don't need to wear clothing. I mean, they don't need any of this stuff. They're, it's a non-utilitarian intelligence, but when it comes to communications, they're far above, more superior than we are. They, their communication abilities are just absolutely incredible. Dolphins have learned to speak English words. We haven't learned one word of dolphin. No. And in order to speak those English words, they actually had to take a couple of months to slow everything down because cetaceans transmit information the way our computers do, large bits of information in, in sounds. They see with their ears. And, uh, you know, I believe that if we spent our energies trying to understand and communicate with orcas that we would achieve far more than and learn a lot more i although i don't sure we want to hear what they have to say if we want to eventually <laughs> no. to, uh, to no. speak yeah a lot of scientists who have been working towards that uh, that objective is to find ways of interspecies communications here's how insane we as a human human beings are we're spending billions of dollars searching through the universe looking for extraterrestrial life we go completely nuts the possibility there might be some bacteria in the clouds of Venus. Yeah. yeah. And yet, and yet we're killing life on this planet like uh, it doesn't matter.
I mean, that's just absolutely insane. Well, in life that we haven't even fully discovered, like you said, how they communicate, their physiology. I mean, doing this podcast and studying a lot of their behavior and physiology and the way they communicate. Chris and I have learned so much about little just a teeny tiny foot in the door of what these animals are capable of doing. And if, even if you're not an animal person, these animals have things that can benefit us, help cancer research, help biomedical things. I mean, just like there's secrets to life. They have a lot more answers, I think, than we give them credit for. And we're not even. Well, one of the problems when it comes to that is we spend literally billions of dollars, um, you know, researching things like cancer and everything and torturing millions of animals to find, try and find a cure, but we spend nothing on, on trying to prevent it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, there's so much nature's given us. I I always say to a lot of my students in the rainforest, I'm like, there's probably something out there that could be very helpful either as a, like you said, as a preventative or, and, off it goes. We don't, we are just totally missing it. And before we've even given it a chance. And so it's just, uh, like you said, I think as the alleged, uh, most intelligent creature, I think we're one of the more insane ones. That's for sure. Yeah. We're just uh, maybe intelligent, but crazy. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, right now the breakdown is something that climate change is, is leading to and, uh, but it also is in caused by, uh, diminishment of diversity and di- diminishment of interdependence. And we're going to see more and more of it. That is emerging viruses. And, uh, you know, we, over the last 20 years, we've had hantavirus reemerge, uh, West Nile visor, Cyrus, Zika, Ebola, all of these things. Nothing has really hit until now that's been global, which is COVID-19. But COVID-19 is just a harbinger of worse things to come for two reasons. One, as we diminish in ecosystems and diminish species, we're going to create more and more zoonomic transmission of viruses. Viruses are absolutely essential for life on this planet. Every plant and every animal has viruses associated with them. It makes it possible for us to live. But when you diminish a species or or destroy an ecosystem, you create a situation where the viruses associated with those particular species have nowhere to go. And ones that are closely related to us, be it bats or primates, whatever, they're gonna look for something that's attractive. And humans, 8 billion humans, that's pretty attractive. Mm -hmm. We're going to jump on that. Don't want to kill the host. But that period of coexistence, to develop that coexistence, is going to kill a lot of hosts in the the process. But also we have the other thing, is the emergence of new pathogens or novel passages that have been lying dormant in the permafrost for 20, 30, 40, 50,000 years. Already we've had an outbreak of... um, up in Finland of anthrax, which killed uh, a number of reindeer and a few human beings. So this is not anything that anybody's taking very, really very seriously. You know, yes, wearing masks and social distancing, that's gonna help right now. But if you really wanna address this, start protecting the ecosystems and the species that prevent us from, uh, you know, catching these viruses, put an end to factory farming. Those are just petri dishes that are, we're putting out there not to we always talk about the wet markets in china they're no different than the factory farms of uh, in the u.s and in, in europe they, they just put to, to death two million mink in europe because uh they've got covid19 you know and so all of these things are develop, are, are the problem of the way we destroy animals 65 billion of them every year that's a mind-boggling number that we kill it contributes more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire transportation industry 
You know, it's a leading cause of groundwater pollution. It's a leading cause of death zones in the oceans. Um, and yet we just don't want to, we don't want to address it because it's inconvenient. You know, we like our hot dogs. <laughs> we like, we like our steaks. We like our, our dairy fry. We, you know, and everybody wants to change, but everybody wants things to change, but they don't want to change themselves. And that's the real problem. If we're going to have a, a world, you know, the world I was born in had 3 billion people and now it's close to 8 billion and I'm still alive, you know? So what's the world of 50 years from now gonna be like? You know, I keep hearing these reports saying, well, you know, the world population is not gonna be more than 12 billion by the end of the century. What can they say that on? Based on my experience in the last 60 years, 3 billion became 8 billion. So what, why is uh, 8 billion only gonna be 12 billion in a hundred years? it just doesn't make sense they're just saying the things that we want to hear the other problem that we have is that all change has to come from the passion of individuals and it is not going to come from governments or corporations mm -hmm. governments will not do change because it's not in their interests uh 30 years ago the conservative prime minister of uh, canada joe clark did something really good he said we have to really recognize that the true value of a gallon of gasoline is. So I'm going to raise the price to reflect what the true value is. And we're going to then have to take things, you know, this is way ahead of his time. Six months later, he was no longer prime minister. Mm -hmm. Any world leader who comes up and as seriously addresses climate change, who seriously addresses the environmental issues is going to be tossed out on his ass by the electorate because they don't want to hear that message. Yeah. They simply don't. And that, and this is why you have, uh, you know, we all know fracking's bad, but the Democrats are not going to condemn fracking because, well, there's jobs that are involved in it, you know. I mean, what are the good of jobs if there's nothing left to have a job about? You know, by 2048, there's not going to be any fishing industry because there won't be any fish. Yeah. You know, yeah, for yeah. hundreds of years, for hundreds of years in Polynesia, the shamans would have this thing called kapu. They would declare a bay, kapu, no fishing in this bay for 20 years. Anybody caught fishing, it was a death penalty. People say, well, that's a little extreme, the death penalty for fishing. No, the shamans understood something, that if the fish died, if they disappeared, so would they. Their very survival depended upon those fish not disappearing. And so, uh, but there's no kapu areas anywhere in the world today. There's no place where the fish can go. You know, Rayathon produces a fish finding device, and its motto is the fish can run, but they can't hide. And that's the problem. The fish have nowhere to go. And we're just taking them out like they're just this, like they're corn in a wheat field or corn in a cornfield. We're just taking them down. We don't care about uh, whether they survive or not. We don't care about their future. You take a look at um, the average size of a, of, a, of a North Atlantic codfish in 1900. It was about uh, up to two meters, now 18 inches. And you know, the best way to find, uh, to, to compare this because we forget we adapt to diminish, but the best way to, to look at this is to look at uh, pictures like from uh, sports fishermen back in those days and see the giant, the, the size of those fish and everything. Yeah. Don't see them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and obviously the pandemic is something we've never experienced in our lifetime. And uh, of course it's just been horrific for many people, many families across the globe. I like to try to be hopeful and think of, okay, well, what good can come from this pandemic or what can we learn? And and Gal, I, I mean, one of my hopes is that a lot of people will start a, at least here in the States, considering science that it's very important and we need more of it. And then also, I think that we are all interconnected and we need to understand that if we're going to 
like you said, survive or live together. And, and obviously I might just, you know, I might just be all hope and no realism there, but I, I think that it is time for our movement to really push forward and excel and get the younger people. I mean, they're, they're the ones that are going to inherit this mess that we've created and, and really start just kind of taking charge, as you mentioned, and knowing that you can't really sit back on your heels and wait for the government to do it because we've been doing that for, I mean, I was environmental sciences major 20 years ago and it didn't, you know, it's, we're moving backwards, especially in our country. So hopefully this can be a wake up call. I think to a lot of people, as far as science and interconnectedness go, uh, at least is my hope, but from your point of view, Captain Paul, I was wondering, has COVID-19 impacted uh, Sea Shepherd? Well, it has. It's certainly created obstacles. So, you know, we're getting our ships are out there, but we have to go through quarantines to get the vessels out of there. One of our vessels has been stuck in Singapore since March because it can't leave because of restrictions there. Uh, Captain Peter Hammerstead, who... Uh, uh, is in charge of our African pam- campaigns. Two days ago, he arrived in Benin, and of course they test you when you get in there. You know, the African nations are actually far better at testing than we are. And uh, he discovered, much to his surprise, that he tested positive for COVID-19 antibodies, which oh, wow. meant he had it, but he didn't even know he had it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, uh, but, uh, you know, things, at least for the next year, things are going to be certainly difficult. And I don't know how things are going to be after that. But, you know, this country is acting very unwisely on, on how, the, how they're dealing with it. I live in Vermont, which is actually the best state in the country right now for things. But I don't understand why. Because I go out on the street right here and there are license plates from Texas and Missouri and uh, Florida. And you're supposed to have a 14-day quarantine when you come into Vermont. There's no way these people are doing that. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing to police it. There's nothing to enforce it. So I'm surprised that well, we haven't had a spike because of that. But, of course, there's mandatory masks. Uh, you know, in, in Woodstock here, uh, it's, it's illegal not to wear a mask. So Vermont's a little ahead of the time uh, uh, in, in that. But there's so much stupidity when it comes to this. I mean, all they have to do is read a history book and look at what, what things were like in 1918, 1919, and how they, how they had to deal with it then. And they had a worse time than us because they just came out of well, this horrendous war and then were hit with this influenza epidemic. But uh, they dealt with it. Uh, so we should be able to, too, now. But again, if we don't deal with it on the long term, then it's going to get worse. And then what we have now will be insignificant compared to what comes down the down the road. And in addition to that, we have all the problems like flooding and fires and all the uh, consequences of, of, of climate change. So would you say climate change is probably the, I, I mean, we've had numerous scientists and conservationists on here, but would you say climate change is the, is the number one issue that is affecting the oceans the most in the long term? Well, there's many, uh, many things affecting the oceans. Climate change is one of them. Plastic pollution, radiation, chemical pollution, overfishing, plastic pollution, all of these things are contributing towards the uh, diminishment of, uh, of, of the ocean to support, or the seas to support themselves. But uh, climate change is a major problem. I just finished writing a book, but it's in the French language uh, uh, on climate change, which has just been published uh, last month in, uh, in France. And uh, what I was going back to is the Permian extinction in 250 million years ago, uh, which was caused by the same thing, but that was because of uh, massive uh, volcanoes and uh, burning coal mines in Siberia. But, you know, the parts per million of of, um, in, in in the air now 
is the same as the beginning of the Permian extinction. And the Permian extinction reached uh, 1500 parts per million, which was pretty, pretty bad. But we're heading in that same uh, direction. And, uh, you know, world leaders just don't see it. They just don't see it. And everybody, you know, people say, well, oh, one for some, what, one or two degrees, it's not going to make a difference. It's going to make a hell of a difference, you know. And the other thing is that the, there, now we've got these things, not, we had climate change deniers. Now we have climate change enablers. People are saying, well, this is going to be great. It's going to be good for tourism. They're going to open up the fisheries up in the Arctic. We're going to do this. The growing season is going to be better, you know. So now they're trying to put a positive spin on how great and wonderful this is, this is going to be. I don't think they really understand the uh, dynamics of what the changing climate really uh, involves. Because, well, you know, when, when the temperature is going to grow, raise one or two degrees, that might be overall. But that could be 10, 15 degrees in certain parts of the country. Australia is going to get really hard. So yeah. the equatorial areas are going to be unlivable. Yeah. Yeah. And so for some of our younger or even older audience that's listening, and of course, a lot of your words I know are ringing very true to me, myself and Chris, what advice do you have for people that are interested in a career of marine animal conservation, ocean conservation, what would you tell them? How would you inspire them? I used to joke that if you really wanted to have a voice, then study acting or music. Yeah, true. <laughs> this is true. Yes. True, true, yeah. true. But uh, no, but I say follow your passions. What, what, do you, what are you interested in? Is it science? Is it art? Is it, is it education? What really are you inspired by? And go for that and develop those skills and, uh, and put them to use. That's really the best you can. Don't try to be something that you just are not. <laughs> you know, If you're inclined to be an artist and be an artist, if you're inclined to be a lawyer, be a lawyer, but uh, you know, make it work. And that's, you know, I can't tell people what, what to do on that. And, but I can certainly say, go with your, follow as Joseph Campbell once said, follow your bliss, go with your passions. Yes, I think there's a voice for everyone. Like you said, it doesn't, if you want to be a lawyer, you can still do environmental law. Or if you want to be an artist, you can do conservation pieces and things like that. So yeah, it's definitely, the more I do this podcast, it's definitely not a one size fits all type conservation movement. And I, I think we need more actors and players from different areas uh, to spread the message and keep the movement going and bring their own, as you mentioned, creativity and their talent to the table. Yeah, when people say I disagree with what you're doing, I say that's fine. Do whatever you're doing. I don't care. But, you know. Right. Yeah. Do something else. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, wow. And now, with your new book, the Orcopedia, how can our listeners find out more information about that? Uh, get the book. Uh, do they, is it on cshepherd.org or uh, how is it available? Well, it's on cshepherd.org. It's uh, in the bookstores and uh, it's on Amazon, of course. Uh, but uh, so it's, it's readily available. You know, people can find it. Just type it in Orcopedia, really. Yes, I have my copy right here. And I must admit, I'm really enjoying just the pictures and the historical background and really giving a name and a story to each Orca and their lineage. And it's just so very interesting. And definitely, uh, it's, it's, I feel as though it's, it's a tribute to these beautiful creatures and to uh, their life. Some of, like you mentioned, were taken brutally. Um, and of course, some of them that are still existing. Uh, and I just, it's, it's awesome. And I love to, towards the end of the book, 
you mentioned um, some of these alternatives to uh, keeping orcas in, uh, in captivity. You talk about sea pens um, and of course, another ideal alternative being whale watching. Uh, would you mind commenting just a little bit on sea pens and where we're at with that? And is that a realistic, uh, futuristic way that we could perhaps interact with orcas, but where they're in a more natural habitat? I wouldn't advocate sea pens for people's entertainment or, you know, sea pens are a device in order to train and rehabilitate orcas back into their natural environment. And what mm -hmm. that means is getting a large area like a bay, netting that bay off, and then teaching the orcas how to survive there. And I think it's possible. Keiko was released and survived uh, for what Keiko died of pneumonia, which she had, he had picked up in, uh, uh, in captivity. But he, he was taking care of himself for the months and months at a time. Mm -hmm. So it's possible to rehabilitate. And that's what sea pens are meant to do, rehabilitate, not to hold them for, for, for amusement or anything. That's great. Now, I, you know, I got spent the hours has flown by. I'm like on the, seriously, the edge of my seat. It, how, how can our listeners help Sea Shepherd? I mean, they go to seashepherd.org. I definitely want to order my shirt. Um, my sister asked me to tell you years ago, you gave her a tour of Sea Shepherd. She was at the Cannes Film Festival with one of her celebrity friends. And I remember you only had one shirt and, and Michelle got it and she didn't. So I got to get her one. But how can our listeners help uh, support you and your efforts and your organization. Was that Michelle Rodriguez? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way back. My sister yeah, was the, the tall, yeah, skinny one. She actually became a crew member. Yeah, yeah. She was coming on. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, well, people can, like I said, they can volunteer to be on the ships. They can volunteer to be sheriff supporters that become mm -hmm. members of the chapters we have around the world. Yeah. They can become contributing supporters. Uh, those are all the different ways to get involved with Sea Shepherd or do whatever uh, you feel inclined to do in whatever area you choose to do it. It all, it all, you know, uh, contributes towards the same end. I, I just want to say, Paul, uh, Captain Paul Watson, the one thing that stands out the most is, as you said, be present, stay in the present and be active and do something about it. So I hope our listeners took that message because that, uh, it just uh, my chills down my spine listening to you talk. So, so thank you so much. Well, thank you. Yes, Captain Paul, thank you so much for being here today. It's like, yeah, it's definitely like one of my uh, conservation rock star hero moments. So I really, I really appreciate you agreeing to this interview and sharing your stories and your knowledge. Um, I, I look forward to hearing more. Like I said, I want that autobiography with all these stories and writing so I can highlight them and uh, all of your words of wisdom have, have just been really touching today for myself and I'm sure I can speak for our listeners. So Thank you so much. And uh, for all of our listeners out there, uh, Chris and I will put show notes on our website um, as far as how you can check out and learn more information about Sea Shepherd. And of course, uh, they have a great social media presence. So I highly re recommend you check out their different platforms. Uh, there's tons of education pieces on there, ways you can help stay informed. And Although a lot of us are at home right now with COVID-19, there's definitely ways that you can get involved from your couch. And a lot of that is on social media and just sharing information. Uh, a great way to start is if you have not watched uh, Whale Wars, get started there. That'll, that'll, that'll definitely hopefully inspire you uh, to this movement of what Sea Shepherd has been doing and what they're going to continue to do. And they definitely need more conservation heroes out there. So thank you, Captain Paul. It's been a pleasure today. Oh, thank you.